Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth divided and enslaved by sin may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome back to our continuing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans. We haven't gotten very far, obviously, um, but we are going to return to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to go ahead and read through the first seven verses. We said that this opening section of Romans is packed full of many ideas. Almost every word that Paul uses is pregnant with meaning, with significance. He writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we took a look at this whole theme of the gospel. We said that linguistically that's the most important word that we have here in this introduction because that's really what the book is all about. Paul is setting forth the gospel. And of course that word gospel, evangelion, literally means good news or glad tidings. Fundamentally, that's what this book that Paul is writing is all about. The the weightiest of all his letters is really a letter about exceedingly good news. And it's a good news, he says, that is ultimately centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Who he says two things about that are of significance. Who he says, first of all, is descended from David according to the flesh. We said last week that that word Christ literally means anointed one. That's not Jesus' surname. That's not his last name. Jesus Christ, as in Jeff Miller, that's his title. He is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah. And that's why Paul writes as he does, and he speaks of him as the descendant of David. We have a great hymn called Hail to the Lord's Anointed. It goes, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son, who in the time appointed his reign on earth begun. Well, that's the idea here. Jesus is the descendant of David. He is the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah, the one who had been foretold centuries before. From the very beginning, God had a promise that he was going to redeem mankind and he was going to do it in and through the Jewish people and in and through a Savior who would come through the line of David. And that's what he talks about. He says, this good news for the world, this exceedingly glad tiding, if you will, is centered on the person of Jesus Christ, who is the long-promised, long-anticipated Son of David. But He's not just the Son of David. Jesus also is, according to Paul, the Son of God. 
He said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, that is to say, it's God's gospel, it's God's good news, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, concerning God's Son. And he says that we know he is God's Son. Why? Because he is declared to be so in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So, this is a message of good news for the world, for all people, for Jews and for Gentiles alike. It is good news that is centered on this person, Jesus, the Christ, who is the son of David, the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah of the Jewish people, but he is also the divine Son of God, declared to be so by his glorious resurrection from the dead. That's why we said that Easter is the keystone of the Christian faith. It's the seal upon Good Friday. Jesus made some extraordinary claims for himself. C.S. Lewis says, claims that if they are not true, make Jesus out to be either a liar or a lunatic. But because of the resurrection, he is shown to be exactly who Paul declares him to be here, and that is the Lord. The Lord. And that's the word that we want to take a look at next. Lots of these words are important. We talked about the word servant. We talked about the word apostle. We talked about the word gospel. Now we come to this word Lord. He is Jesus Christ, but Paul says he is also our Lord. Now we use that frequently in church. We sometimes speak of it when we're talking of other people, Jesus the Lord or the Lord Jesus Christ. But you need to understand that in the first century, that word was of the utmost importance. It was not just something that you applied to anybody. To the early Christians, that was a word that was of the utmost importance. As a matter of fact, this notion of Jesus Christ being the Lord was the earliest of the Christian creeds. It was the earliest Christian declaration. When Paul and the others went out in those early centuries of the Christian church and they began to preach the gospel, this was the earliest proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, that was the thing that ultimately got the early Christians arrested, thrown into jail, oftentimes fed to the lions or crucified or burned at the stake. It was this notion that Jesus Christ was Lord. Now, that just doesn't seem to be so controversial to us today. But it is controversial in other parts of the world today. For example, you could not put up a billboard. Now, if you're driving up I-17 today on your way to Florence or on your way up to North Carolina, you are likely to see a bulletin board somewhere along the way, a billboard that says, Jesus is Lord. And we don't think anything of that. It's probably right next to that one that says, only 10 miles to Pedro at south of the border. But it's not all that controversial. We don't pay much attention to it, much mind to it at all. But imagine doing that in China. What would happen to you if you put up a sign that said, Jesus is Lord in China? Well, the chances are you're going to be arrested. You're going to be thrown into prison, and you may rot there. Because in that part of the world, to declare Jesus Christ to be Lord is controversial indeed. Well, it was even more so in the days of the Apostle Paul. To declare Jesus as Lord meant that Caesar was not And that was not just punishable by imprisonment, that was considered to be sedition. That was punishable 
by death. So that title of Lord was a very important title, and it was the earliest Christian declaration. Paul and Peter and James and John and all the rest were basically saying to the world, a new sheriff has arrived in town. Caesar is out. Jesus, the Christ, is now Lord. And that was very controversial. But you can see it. You can see it in the writings of the Apostle Paul. So take a look, for example, at Romans chapter 10 first. It's going to be some time, a couple of years probably, before we get to Romans chapter 10. Some of you may have gone on to glory by then. Who knows? But we'll see. Romans chapter 10. Here's what Paul writes. We'll pick up the text at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's the resurrection, you will be saved. There it is. How does a person become saved? What is necessary in order to arrive safely on that happy shore, as Wesley called it? You must believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And it's not just here in Romans. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Beginning at verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So it's clear to the early Christians that that title of Lord being ascribed to Jesus was something more than just a polite form of address. It meant something much more to them. The Greek word is kyrios. It can be used as just a polite title. For example, sometimes, um, well, this is particularly true if you've been raised in the South, You've been raised to refer to men and women as sir and ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. That's a title of respect. It's a title of honor. It's just polite conversation. And in the first century, sometimes you could use the term kyrios in that way. Some people actually did. When they came up to Jesus, they would say, Lord, good sir, for example. They would come with a question. But what is interesting is that in the Septuagint, now what is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And most of the apostles, Peter and James and John and so forth, they would have been operating out of that translation of the Old Testament. We have our own translations, 
Some of you are reading perhaps from the New International Version. Some of you are reading from the English Standard Version. Some of you are reading from the NASB. Some of you are reading from the King James, perhaps. But the most common translation that those people used in the first century was the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation from the Hebrew. They would have been very familiar with that, Paul and others, particularly Paul because he was operating in a Greco-Roman culture. And what is interesting is that in that translation of the Old Testament, the term kurios is always used to translate the divine name for God. There was a name, the technical term for it is tetragrammaton. That's a big word for you. Tetragrammaton. That is the technical word, it's the name for God, and no Jew was permitted to speak it. And so whenever a scribe who was writing down the, or copying the Old Testament text came to the divine name for God, which is normally translated today as Yahweh or Jehovah, whenever they came to that name, they were not permitted to speak it. God was so transcendent, so holy, so removed, so aloof, that you were not even permitted to speak His name. There's this grand gulf that exists between God and His creation. And so when a scribe came to that name in the text, the first thing he would do is he would stop, put down his pen, and he would go and wash his entire body from top to bottom. Because he was approaching the name of God. And how easily we take the name of God in vain these days. But how serious they were about this. And because it was a name that could not be spoken, they had to translate it in a different way. And in the Septuagint, the name Yahweh or Jehovah was always translated Kyrios. So whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you come to the word Lord in the Old Testament, that is really the name for God. And the scribes are using it as a substitute, Lord. Now that's how Paul is using the title here. It's not just a common form of address, it is actually the name for God. So when he says, Jesus Christ our Lord who according to the power of the Spirit was resurrected from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, this is a title of divinity that Paul is describing to Jesus. And again, this is something else that we see frequently in the New Testament. One of the most obvious examples is in John chapter 20. It's following the resurrection. Jesus had appeared to the other disciples. Thomas had not been with them. We don't know where Thomas was. But when Jesus appeared again, Thomas was with them. Thomas, of course, had doubted. When the other disciples said, we have seen the Lord, Thomas said, I will not believe it. I'll not believe it until I can take my hands and put them in the the spot in his side where the spear was placed. I will not believe until I can take my fingers and place them in the nail prints. And Jesus then, of course, appears in the midst of them, and he comes up to Thomas. I would have loved to have been there on that occasion. You know, I think in part because I would have been in exactly the same place as Thomas was. And by the way, so would the rest of you. I mean, if anybody says, we've seen somebody back from the dead, what do you say for that? Oh, well, okay. You probably need a little rest. You need to take a nap. Uh, uh, perhaps you need to go see the doctor. I don't know what's going on. But we would, our first inclination would not to have been to believe it. In fact, we're told that even when the disciples did see Jesus... You know how the text puts it? I think it's in Luke. It says, they disbelieved for joy. Now think about that. That's a a fascinating expression. They disbelieved 
for joy. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that they don't believe. It's the same thing we would say if somebody tells you some exceedingly good news. Hey, listen, I have just placed $15 million in your bank account. My first reaction would be, I can't believe it! And even if I saw it in there, I would still say, I can't believe it! That's what it meant. They disbelieved for joy. That's how Thomas was. And so Jesus comes up to him and he says, Thomas, you wanted to put your hand in my side. You wanted to put your finger in my nail. Come, come on over here. I think Thomas at that point, oh, it's okay. I'm all right. We're good. But the Lord insists upon it. And what is Thomas's reaction? He falls at the Lord's feet and he says, my Lord and my God. Those two titles you see are connected. My Lord and my God. And I want to take a look at some of these other passages because it's very important that we understand what Paul is saying here. Again, every word that he uses here is pregnant with significance and meaning. He has carefully chosen these words. So take a look at 1 Corinthians for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 It's the next book over in the New Testament, so just turn to your right, and you'll get 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. Paul, again, is talking about idolatry, idols. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, but you'll notice that those words are what? Lowercase, aren't they? Small g gods, small l lords. Yet for us there is one God, capital G, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist. And one Lord, capital L, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Isn't it interesting that he says, God the Father is the one from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And when he speaks of Lord Jesus Christ, he says almost exactly the same thing. Whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So, Lord and God are being used interchangeably by Paul here in 1 Corinthians. Take a look at Luke chapter 2. This will be a familiar section to you, especially as we get close to the Christmas season. And in that same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord, Lord, shone round about them. That is the glory of God, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is what? Christ the Lord. So it was the glory of the Lord that shone round about them and filled them with fear. And the good news was that just over the brow of the hill in Bethlehem, a Savior was born to them who was Christ the 
Lord, whose glory at that very moment was filling the skies. Matthew chapter 22. Verses 41 and following. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? That is the Messiah. Whose son is he? You're very interested in the, in the Messiah, the coming of the Savior? Well, who do you think he is? They said to him, The son of David. Well, that was true. Paul's already said that's who the Messiah was going to be, a descendant of David. That answer was correct insofar as it went. But Jesus wanted to correct them. He said to them, well, then how is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? And he quotes from the Old Testament. For the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David, who's supposed to be his father, calls him Lord... (laughs) How can that be? And I love this next verse. And no one was able to answer him a word. And from that day forward, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's take a look at one final one. It's in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now what that shows us is that this term Lord is not just a polite title. This is a title of divinity. This is an extraordinary claim. And this, as I said, is the reason why the early Christians got in trouble for proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, history has a great example of this. It took place in the year 156 A.D., and it had to do with a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was an early bishop of the church around the city of Smyrna, and he was arrested. In those days, um, they would have what was known as the cult of emperor worship. Uh, The emperor was considered to be a deity, uh, not in the same level as those who dwelt on high, but he was a minor deity. He he ruled by divine right, if you will. Very similar, if you will, uh, to the Japanese emperor prior to 1945. Up to 1945, the emperor of Japan was considered to be divine. Did you know that? He sat on the chrysanthemum throne, and he was considered to be a deity. Now, he had to revoke that after the Japanese lost the war. 
But up to that point, he was considered to be divine. Well, that's the way it was with the Roman emperor. And on the Roman emperor's birthday, you were expected to offer up incense, which was a form of religious practice. Incense takes place in many religions, in Eastern religions, but also in the Western church. We sometimes use incense. The book of Revelation speaks of incense, the prayers of the faithful being offered up like a sweet-smelling incense before God. In the Old Testament, the Jewish priest had to offer up incense. There was uh, an altar in which incense was burned continuously. So you had to offer incense, which was a religious practice, on the emperor's birthday because he was a god. Polycarp refused to do that. And what's more, you had to call Caesar Lord. And that's the second thing Polycarp refused to do. Now, there were many people out there who called the emperor Lord. They didn't really believe it. You know, there, there are many people, for example, in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church teaches certain things, and they don't necessarily believe it. Well, that's the way it was here. They didn't necessarily believe that he was the Lord, but it's better than being imprisoned or killed for it. Well, Polycarp, this early bishop of the church, refused to call Caesar Lord, and he was arrested for it. And he was being driven in a cart to the place of execution, and he had two advisors with him, two young men who were basically his acolytes, his disciples, and they were pleading with him. They were pleading with him just to call Caesar Lord. What's the harm in that? We all know that he's not. We all know that an idol is no thing. Paul said so. Just call him Lord. Let's get on with the work. And Polycarp said, For over 80 years, he has been good to me. How can I deny now the king who saved me? There is but one Lord. And for that, Polycarp would give up his life. But he was translated from this life to the life eternal. Why? Because he believed in his heart and he confessed with his mouth that Jesus Christ alone was Lord. Now that's what Paul is talking about here. That's what he's saying about Jesus Christ. Is that he is the Lord. Well, here's the question I put to you today. Is he your Lord? Paul makes it very clear he is the Lord. And sooner or later, one day, if not today, someday in the future, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he is the Lord, but the real question is, is he your Lord? Now somebody might say, well, yes he is. I believe in my heart and I'm willing to profess with my lips. Well, that's an easy thing to do in a free country where there's hardly any retribution for doing so. But what does it really mean to say that Jesus Christ is Lord? Let me suggest to you six areas in which the Bible, when it speaks of Jesus being Lord, means that he is Lord of all. Six implications. First of all, there's an intellectual implication. To say that Jesus Christ is Lord means that Jesus Christ is Lord of your thoughts. Lord of your thoughts. Lord of your mind. Lord of your intellectual enterprise, whatever that may be. 
We see this very clearly in the Gospels. Let me just give you a few examples. Matthew chapter 11 is a great example from the Gospels. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That is what it means to make Christ Lord of your thoughts. It is to humble yourself, take his yoke upon you, and learn from him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your what? Your mind and all your strength. Paul spells this out in great detail, I think, very clearly in Philippians. Now, I know we skip around quite a bit in the New Testament, in the Old Testament in this class, but it's important that we understand that this is not just a, a single reference, that, that, that this is the unanimous testimony of the entire Bible. So, Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, he's asking the question, what are you filling your mind with? You know, we live in a culture in which we are bombarded constantly. There is no rest. These things are supposed to be freeing devices. But actually, we find ourselves chained to them. And we are bombarded continuously with a lot of information, with images and so forth. And the vast majority of them, the vast majority of them are anything but noble, pure, lovely, praiseworthy. Sometimes you find yourself going down a track you never even intended to. And there are people that are always out there targeting you. So you have to fill your mind with what? Noble things, lovely things, pure things. And what Paul is saying there is that these are not subjective categories. These are objective truths. There are some things quite frankly, that are noble. There are some things that are beautiful, and they're noble, and they're beautiful all the time. It's not a matter of, well, that's noble and beautiful to you, but it's not to me. No, Paul says. Why are these objective categories? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. What he calls noble, what he calls beautiful, what he calls lovely, those things are noble, lovely, and beautiful. And everything else is noble, lovely, and beautiful if... They are in relationship to that. So what are you filling your mind with? The things that Christ would fill his mind with? The noble things, the lovely things, the beautiful things in this life? Is Jesus Christ Lord of your mind? Is he Lord of your thoughts? Don't say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is my Lord, if he's not the Lord of your mind. So there's an intellectual component to this. There is also an ethical component to this. Our behavior, 
Look at Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus put it this way. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So here's the second question. Is Jesus Lord of your mind, but is Jesus also Lord of your behavior? Remember that little children's song? Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little ears what you hear. Oh, be careful little feet where you go. For there's a Father up above and He's looking down with love. Oh, be careful little feet where you go. Is that true for you? You know, when it talks about behavior here, it's not just talking about those forms of behavior that are acceptable to other people. It's talking about those forms of behavior, those actions that are ultimately acceptable to God, those things that are pleasing to Him. What is good? What is noble? It's those things that bring renown and glory to God. So is Jesus Christ really Lord of your behavior? I don't have this up there on the screen, but I just got to put it out there because we're getting close to stewardship season. Is he Lord of your money? Because that's part of the behavior, isn't it? That's part of your behavior. How do you spend your money, the resources that are at your disposal? Is he the Lord of your resources? Now, if you're not sure, go back and look at your credit card statement from the past month or your checkbook or however you want to do it, your Venmo account. I don't know what you have, but go ahead and look at those things and ask that question, is he the Lord of my behavior? So there's an ethical, there's an intellectual, there's a vocational aspect to this as well. He's to be the Lord of your work. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to become a clergyman in order to do the Lord's work. Obviously, if we were all clergymen, we'd be in a real mess here in South Carolina when the heat gets turned on and there's nobody to fix the air conditioning. That's not what we're talking about here. But he is the Lord of the work that you do. Is he in that work? See, one of the problems we face in our culture is that we have this tendency to separate our lives out. There's this religious aspect of our life, and then there are these other things that we do. And truth be known, the vast majority of the other things that we do take up the time, the effort, and the energy, and there's only a little bit of time left for God. Let's be honest about that. Isn't that true? But if Jesus Christ is Lord, if he really is Lord... That he's got to be Lord of our minds, he's got to be Lord of our behaviors, and he's got to be Lord of our work. Turn, if you will, please, to Acts chapter 9.
You know this story. It's very familiar to us. It's the story of Paul's own conversion. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Now, Paul, at least at this point, recognized that he was having what is called a theophany, an encounter with God. That's why he calls him Lord, capital L there. But the response that he gets is not what he expected. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Here was Paul. He had his own ideas about what he wanted to do. He was absolutely convinced that he was serving God by going out and dismantling the Christian church, by arresting men and women and dragging them back to Jerusalem for trial. But in reality, he was not serving God. He was working against God. Part of making God Lord of your work is asking the Lord, what would you have me do with my life? One of my favorite hymns is, Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to Thee. So often we have our own plans, our own ideas, and that's where we go with this. I'll be honest with you, that was certainly the case with me. I thought when I graduated from college, I was either going to go into academia and teach history, or I was going to be a lawyer. I couldn't decide which one. But after my freshman year in college, there was an Episcopal priest, wonderful man, small congregation in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, who took me aside one day, and he said, young man, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, well, I want to do this, or I want to do that. And he said, why do you want to do those things? And I told him exactly why I wanted to do them, and I was a very driven young man at that point, and I had a very clear idea as to where I was going. And he said, I want you to do me a little favor. He said, during your summer break, I want you to pray about the ministry. He said, that's all I want you to do. Just, just, just pray about it. He asked me, have you ever thought about it? Well, I mean, thought about it like every Catholic girl thinks about becoming a nun at some point, you know, for about <laughs> two minutes. I don't particularly interested in that. But by the end of that period, having prayed about it, I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that I could do a lot of other things and be successful. I could never do anything else and be content. Is Jesus Christ Lord of your work? Is Jesus Christ Lord of the church. We had a meeting of the clericus, the Charleston clergy this morning over at St. Michael's Church for breakfast. We do that every so often. We hosted it last month. They hosted it this month. And I was talking to one of the priests over there, and he was telling me about how he had worked for a priest in the upstate. And that priest said that no matter what happened, no matter what, he would never, ever, ever leave the Episcopal Church. And Bill Christian and I were walking back from that meeting, and Bill said to me, many people ask me that. They asked me the question, why did you leave? I said, you should have asked them, why did they stay? <laughs> you see, when you say, I will never, ever, ever, ever leave this institution, what you're saying is, even if it goes down the way of apostasy, I am loyal to that over loyalty to Christ. 
What that says is that Jesus is not Lord of your life. Because you can never say, I will be absolutely loyal to this institution, to anything earthly, anything earthly. You can never say, always, without variance, I will be loyal to that. Because to do that is to displace Jesus Christ as Lord. It's to kick him off the throne and put something else there. He is the Lord of the church, which is his bride. He's got to be the Lord of the nation as well. I'm sure that's one that strikes a nerve these days. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40. This is a familiar passage. I referenced it in my last sermon. We sing it or say it either in song or we have it read in church every Advent season about the comfort of Jerusalem. But here's what it says. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Now, I want to preface what I'm about to say. I'm a patriot. I'm patriotic. I fly the flag every single day. I've got a son that's serving in the military. I'm proud and grateful to be an American. But America is not the equivalent of the kingdom of God. And what that passage is saying is that nations rise and nations fall... And what was true of every empire that has gone before, whether it's the Egyptian Empire or the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire or the British Empire or the American Empire, these things are but dust in the scales. And if a nation is to survive and thrive, Christ must be Lord of the country. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, here's a great example of this. You probably know it very well. It's the example of Eric Little. Eric Little, as you know, back in 1924, was a runner. He was part of the British Olympic team. The games were being held in Paris in those years. Now, this was in the wake of World War I, so there was a great deal of national feeling. People were proud of their nations. The British, in particular, were proud of their nation. They had helped to win the world safely. They had defeated the Germans and so forth. And there's this great Olympic game. So everybody's going out. There's a lot of national feeling. Eric Little was a devout Christian. He was a Scotsman. He's running for the British Olympic team. But he discovers that one of the qualifying heats for his race, and he was someone who was expected to lead the nation to victory, it was discovered that one of the qualifying heats was going to be on a Sunday. Now, in his strict Presbyterianism, Sunday was the Lord's Day. And you don't work on Sunday. You don't mow the grass on Sunday. You don't even go to a football game necessarily on Sunday. Sunday is the Lord's Day, which means it's dedicated to who? It's to the Lord 
Every other day you can do what you need to do, but Sunday is the Lord's day. It used to be a time when we believed that. When businesses were closed on Sunday, and not just Chick-fil-A, all businesses were closed on... How many of you remember those days? Not anymore, because what's more important, what is now Lord, it's, it's money. Money is now the Lord. That's, that's what we want, and so we, want to, we don't want to lose the business. But in those days, Eric Little took seriously this notion of the Lord's day, and so he said that he could not run in the qualifying heat. Well, if he couldn't run in the qualifying heat, he couldn't run in the race. And so the coaches and, and all the organizers were putting a great deal of pressure on this young man. But he refused to do it. So finally they brought in the big guns. They brought in the Prince of Wales. Now this is the future king of England. He'll become Edward VIII. He's the future king. He's, he's, he's the head of the nation. And they bring in Eric Little. He comes into this room. You've seen it probably in Chariots of Fire. It's actually an accurate rendition of what happened. He's brought into the presence of all these powerful, important people, and there is sitting the future king. And the future king appeals to him. He says, look, we understand where you're coming from. We get it. We honor your religious convictions. But you understand that this is a whole issue of of, of national pride. This is an opportunity for you to give glory to God by winning something for England. And Eric Little is resistant to that, and one man blurts out. Eric Little says, you know, I I can't help it. The the Bible says that that God must be first. God knows I love my country, but, but God must be first. And somebody blurts out, in my day it was king first and God after. Somebody else responds, and the war to end all wars proved your point. At any rate, Eric Little would refuse to run. They came up with a solution. They decided that he would run a different race. It wasn't even one that he trained for. But he could run the qualifying heat on Saturday and not have to compromise his convictions. But he hadn't even trained for the race. He not only ran that race and won that race, he set a new world's record. And as he was getting into the starting blocks, one of the American runners came up to him and slipped him a piece of paper, a passage from the Old Testament. It said, he that honors me, I will honor. If Jesus Christ is going to be Lord, he's got to be Lord of the nation. And as Christians, we have to believe that he is also the Lord of the world. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2. Sooner or later, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to Jesus Christ as Lord. So here's my question to you again. If you say Jesus Christ is my Lord, I want to know, is he the Lord of your mind? Is he the Lord of your behavior? Is he the Lord of your work? Is he the Lord in the church? That's the question. He is the Lord. Paul makes that point very clear. He is the divine Son of God. But the real question is, is He your Lord? And only you can answer that for yourself. 
Someone put it this way, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, Jesus Christ really isn't Lord at all. So when the scripture says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, this is really what it's talking about, folks. It's not just lip service. It is something that is apparent in your life. And that's why Paul goes on to say what he does in verse 5. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That fifth verse almost seems like an add-on. I mean, if you read the first four verses, it's almost as though Paul has been building toward this climax. Listen to the words again, and let me stop at verse 4, and you'll see how it sounds like a climax. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And you expect everybody to say, Amen! But then Paul throws in this little part, almost an anticlimax about the obedience of faith. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. Now, what does that mean? The obedience of faith. What is is Paul talking about there? Well, it's a continuation of this notion of Jesus Christ as Lord. But the way Paul puts it is very interesting. Who's out there reading from the New International Version of the Bible? Somebody's got to have the NIV out there. All right, there's one NIV, a couple of NIVs. The NIV translates this text, and I just want you to listen carefully to how the NIV puts it, because it puts it slightly different from the way the ESV puts it. Verse 5, NIV. Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Now, according to the NIV, the translators of the NIV, the obedience that Paul is talking about here comes from what? Faith. Faith. It's the consequence of faith. It's the result of faith. It's the fruit of of faith. Now, is that true? Well, yes, it's absolutely true. There is a sense in which good works are connected to our life as Christians. Now, Paul makes it very clear, and I want to be very clear about this, you are not saved by your good works. You know, nothing in my hand I bring. Augustus Toplady said, simply to the cross I cling. There is nothing that you and I can do that we can ingratiate ourselves to God. There's nothing that you and I can do to win God's favor. 
It is all a matter of his grace, his undeserved, unearned favor, which we receive by faith. But that doesn't mean that there's no place for good works in our lives. Even Paul in Ephesians 2, when he talks about you are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man may boast, goes on to say that we were saved for a purpose, for good works, which God intended us to walk in. So good works do have a place in the Christian life. They are the fruit, the result of salvation, not the means to it. So the translators of the NIV get that right. Theologically, they are correct. But that's not actually what Paul says. I love the New International Version of the Bible, but in this sense, they don't get the translation quite the way Paul put it. Incidentally, these first five verses, in Greek, they're all one sentence. So it just runs on, one thought, one idea to the next. The NIV says this is an obedience that comes from faith. But the ESV, which is the correct translation from the Greek, a literal translation from the Greek, is the obedience of faith. Now, I think I understand what the NIV translators were trying to do. But what Paul is saying here is even more emphatic. He's not saying the obedience which comes from faith. He's saying the obedience, the very nature of which is faith. For those of you who know Greek, this is what we would call the genitive of apposition. Literally, what Paul is saying is faith, which is obedience. Real faith is obedience. It's not just something that follows from faith. Real faith, Paul says, is obedience. Now, why is that? Paul is the great gospel of grace. He's the apostle of the justification by faith. How in the world can he say that faith is obedience? It's because of what disobedience is. What is sin? Not a trick question, I promise you. What is sin? Ultimately, sin is disobedience, isn't it? I'm going to give you a very simple definition of sin. Here it is. You want to know what sin is? Write this down. It's doing anything that God forbids, and it's failing to do anything that God commands. That's sin. Pure and simple. I will gladly say it again. Sin is doing anything that God forbids, and it's failing to do anything that God commands. So, sin at its heart is what? Disobedience. It's disobedience. And what did Christ come to save us from? Sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus Christ came to save us from. To deliver us from the power of sin. The penalty for sin, which is death and the presence of sin one day. That's what He came to deliver us from. That's the good news of the Gospel. The power of sin which holds us in its bondage. We are slaves to sin. The very things I want to do, I do not do. The very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? He came to save us from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. 
And one day He's going to deliver us from the presence of sin. So that we shall be like Him in His glory. But if that's what Jesus Christ came to do, and at its heart sin is disobedience, then true faith is obedience. And that's what Paul is talking about. The good news. The good news that God is proclaiming to the world is that a Savior has come. He is the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah, the Son of David, great David's greater Son. But He is also the Son of God, and we know this because of His resurrection from the dead. And because of His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And because He is Lord of all, He requires obedience. And that obedience is not onerous, It's not oppressive. It is freeing. It is a service of perfect freedom. It is the newfound ability to do the things that up to this point you were incapable of doing. Living no longer for yourself, but for Him who died for you and rose again. That's the gospel. That's what the epistle to the Romans is all about. And that's just in the first five verses. Isn't that glorious? What a glorious message that Paul is unfolding for us in the chapters to come. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this great epistle to the Romans. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of David, but your Son, the one by whom, through whom all things were made, the Lord of the world. And we pray by your grace, the Lord of our lives. Grant us the strength, the courage, the desire to follow him wherever he leads. That as he was a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel, we may be a reflection like the moon reflecting the rays of the sun. Grant that we may live no longer for ourselves, but for him. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.